Our scripture reading is from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. The seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died. The resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is, there not, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen, church. Please go ahead and have a seat. I trust you all had a very happy, filling Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful holiday. It's a great time for fun and family and food. Well, I read about a pastor this week named Steffi Belinsky. He would teach the church's confirmation classes, and he would start each confirmation class with a jar full of beans. And he would ask the people to guess how many beans are in that jar, and he would write down their estimates. And then next to that list of estimates, he would ask another question. He would ask them what their favorite song is. And he would list that next to the estimates of the beans. And when the two lists were were completed, he would reveal the actual number of beans in the jar. And of course, both class would think through their guesses and try to figure out who was closest. But then Belinsky would turn to the list of favorite songs, and he would say, Which one of these songs is closest to being right? The students would kind of protest and say, well, there's no right answer to a favorite song. It's just purely a matter of taste. Now, Belinsky, who held a Ph.D. in philosophy from Notre Dame, would ask this. When you decide to believe in terms of your faith, is that more like guessing the number of beans or is it more like choosing your favorite song?" Surprisingly, more times than not, the answer he would get from the class was choosing one's faith is more like choosing a favorite song. Why? Why would they say that? Do we get to decide what to believe about God and His Word? Is that up to us? Why would people answer that way? Well, because of this, Because we have all been exposed to the world's ideas about God and not not by God himself. In other words, the messages we hear are filled with bad doctrine. What is doctrine? In general, doctrine is a word that's used to relate to a principle or a position. It's something that's laid down as true. And biblically speaking, a doctrine is something, is a topic that the Bible teaches on. 
So let's take, for instance, the topic of salvation. What does the Bible have to say of salvation? Well, everything, if you were to take everything the Bible has to say about salvation, that would be the doctrine of salvation, what the Bible teaches. But we can't choose to believe what we want to believe about salvation. We have to discover what the Bible says about a topic like salvation. It is vitally important for us to have a correct understanding of the doctrines and Scripture. Otherwise, like the students in the story, we might think we can pick and choose what we want to believe about God only to be totally mistaken. C.S. Lewis said this, if you, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Because in our text today with the Sadducees, we are dealing with a case of bad doctrine. And this morning, I want to consider the topic of biblical doctrine and why it is so important, and I want to draw these conclusions from our text today in Mark chapter 12. If you've been following us through our study in Mark, you know that we've been in Mark chapter 12 for three weeks now. And we're in this section that I I told you was called Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. He's been teaching here at Jerusalem all through chapters 11 and 12. He's been rejecting the temple practices. He's been rejecting the Jewish leaders. He's been questioned by the Sanhedrin. We saw that in chapter 12. He shared a parable about the bad tenants who represented the Jewish leaders. All of this has been going on. Last week, we saw how the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap Jesus with a question on taxes because they're questioning his authority. Today, we're going to see another group questioning Jesus' authority, but they're coming at it from a different angle. And this is a group called the Sadducees. If you read through chapter 12, you get this idea that it's almost like a turn-based game. You know those games that we love to play, Monopoly, Risk, and all those fun things? They're turn-based. In other words, you take your turn, and then the next person takes their turn, and it goes all the way around until it gets back to you again. Well, that's kind of what we have going on here. Last week, the Pharisees and Herodians had their turn. They had a bad role. This week, the Sadducees have their turn, and we'll see what kind of role they get. Next week, we have a scribe who takes his turn, and then in a couple weeks, Jesus gets his turn. And I'm looking forward to preaching that message. But before we get there, let's deal with the text that is right in front of us. Let's see what the Sadducees try. Here's your first point from our text this morning. Bad doctrine leads to bad thinking and bad living. Bad doctrine leads to bad thinking and bad living. So let's pick up the text again in verse 18. It reads, And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Last week, the Pharisees and Herodians questioned Jesus about taxes. 
Now we have a new group. We have this group called the Sadducees, and believe it or not, it's the first and only time this group appears in the book of Mark. Now the Sadducees, just to give you a little bit of history here, they were one of actually three religious groups that lived during the New Testament times. The others being, of course, the Pharisees. We've talked about them. There was this little group called the Essenes, which actually, they don't even appear in the New Testament, but we know from history that they were there during the New Testament times. So the two main groups that we see in the New Testament are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the differences between these two groups are pretty big. First of all, the Pharisees, they believed in the Torah, that is the first five books of Moses, But you'll remember they added all their oral traditions. We've talked about that, how Jesus would break the oral traditions of the Pharisees and they'd get really mad at him for that. He was never breaking the law, but he was breaking their oral traditions that they added to the law. Now the Sadducees, they also strictly held to the Torah, but they didn't add anything. You could almost say that they they were a type of purists and they despised the Pharisees for their oral traditions. Now the Pharisees, they believed all the way into the supernatural. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in the afterlife. They believed all that. Now, the Sadducees, when it comes to the supernatural, there's a little bit of debate, but we know for a fact they did not believe in the resurrection. Mark states it plainly right here. They did not believe that people would rise again. They did not believe that. They actually, in part, got some of their their beliefs from a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, He believed the soul died with the body, and they had adopted that belief, and they didn't think that you could prove from the Torah that there was a resurrection, so they didn't believe it. Now, whether they believed in angels and demons and that kind of thing, we really don't know, but we know for a fact they did not believe in the resurrection. So it's this group that approaches Jesus with this question. But before they get to their question, they provide the the, the scriptural backing for their question. They point out to Jesus what Moses said in the law concerning what we would call leveret marriage. And the teaching comes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 reads like this, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man must, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, in our day and age, this sounds a little strange. This whole leveret marriage idea is, is kind of weird, and we might think, Why would God allow such a practice? It's important to remember that the Old Testament law provided means to protect people. And this law was to protect the continuance of the family line, that it would continue, that it wouldn't die out, but it was also meant to protect the woman who would otherwise end up a poor widow. We've talked about this in other passages in the book of Mark even, that in biblical culture, a single woman had no rights. She couldn't go out and get a job like a single woman can today. She had no rights. So if a woman's husband died, she would likely end up homeless. So this law, this lever of marriage, in part is protecting her and allowing her to continue raising offspring and continue the family line. So that's why this law was in effect, and it's in Scripture. It's here, this Scripture, that provides the foundation for the Sadducees' question. And their question is, look again at verse 20. There were seven brothers. Now, this is hypothetical, okay? There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as wife. 
Now their question, this, something should immediately stick out in your minds as you're reading this based on verse 18, and that question is this, if the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, why are they even pondering this hypothetical situation? Why are they even bringing this to Jesus? Why would they even care? And maybe you're even thinking, how is this even a trap? Well, similar to last week's question about taxes, this question does, provide, does present a bit of a, a rock and a hard place for Jesus, but not in the same way. Jesus is not in danger of being arrested or of losing favor with the people like last week, but rather... What the Sadducees are trying to do is they're trying to make the resurrection and, by extension, Jesus look foolish. They're trying to make them all look foolish. See, the Sadducees, they thought that the resurrection, when they heard the Pharisees teaching about the resurrection, they kind of pictured it as, as resembling the life that we have now. See, they thought the resurrection means, well, we just kind of come back to life, and we just kind of continue this life that we've always known. We continue to breathe. We continue to work. We continue to learn. We continue to marry. We just continue in this life that we've always known. That was their idea of the resurrection. And this hypothetical situation was probably used by the Sadducees as a joke, just as a taunt, really. They would, they would you know, you Pharisees, you believe in the resurrection. Well, whose wife would this woman be if she were married to seven husbands in the resurrection? And they saw it as a joke, they saw it as a taunt that they would, they would toss at each other, as of course groups tend to do. But even so, let's just stop and consider the question, because they do have an interesting point. If, if the resurrection was just some sort of continuation of the life that we have now, maybe there is something valid to their question. Whose wife would she be? See, what they're doing is they're setting Jesus up and they're trying to either, either force him to make some feeble argument that the woman belonged to probably the first husband even though they all had her, or they're trying to get Jesus to admit that the concept of the resurrection has flaws. And if they can do that, then they can make Jesus look foolish. And if they can do that, they can score a point. That's the whole idea behind this question here. And if we think about this and the questions that come to Jesus in chapter 12, it's almost like each question that's brought to Jesus lowers a degree of intensity. The first question had some severe ramifications. Jesus could either be arrested or lose favor with the people. This question, what we're dealing with today, doesn't cost Jesus that, but it could cost him honor. Looking foolish in public could cost him honor. Next week, we'll see the intensity of Jesus' question is lowered even more. And honestly, next week's question is more of an honest question rather than a trap. But the Sadducees, they think they have a clever plan to make Jesus look foolish. They think that their question leads to the obvious outcome that the concept of the resurrection is flawed. But you see, what's really going on here is that they have bad doctrine. And bad doctrine leads to bad thinking and bad living. We don't just see this in Jesus' day and age. We see this in our day and age. Let's take, for instance, the prosperity gospel. This is probably one of the most popular and most dangerous false doctrines that's in our day and age. And believe it or not, there's two ways that this false doctrine is presented. One is external and overt. And what I mean by that is that the teaching is out there. 
There is the prosperity gospel preachers that openly declare, come to Jesus and he'll give you everything you want. And you know what I'm talking about. The prosperity gospel takes biblical texts like Luke 6.38, which reads this, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. They take passages like 3 John 1, 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. The prosperity gospel, the overt prosperity gospel, takes these passages out of context and teaches them as truth, as promises, that you're going to be blessed beyond what you can imagine. Now, just to be clear about these verses that I just read to you, They're taken out of context by the prosperity gospel. There's purpose in why these verses are in the Bible. For instance, the passage in Luke, that's dealing with forgiveness. That's dealing with the topic of not judging people and that if we forgive, we're going to be forgiven and there's going to be blessing that follows forgiveness. That's what that's talking about. Third John, that's a prayer. He says it right there. I pray that all may go well with you. You've said similar prayers for yourself and for others. Does it always happen? No, it's not a promise. It's simply a prayer. But that bad doctrine that leads to bad thinking and bad living comes from this idea that I can just take a verse out of Scripture and teach it as truth, and God's going to bless me. And people get this idea in their heads, things like, you know, I go to church and I do my religious duty and God's going to bless me and give me all I want. And that thinking deceives people further and further away from the true gospel. That thinking becomes self-sufficient instead of God-sufficient. So you could call that major prosperity gospel, overt external prosperity gospel, We all could name preachers who proclaim that, and it's a bad doctrine. It's a wrong doctrine. In fact, you know this. The Bible teaches us that life will be hard. Jesus says to us that we will experience trouble. We're not going to get everything we want, and to think otherwise leads to behavior that is simply unchristian. But I said there were two ways this prosperity gospel idea is presented. One is the external and overt, but the other, the other is internal and subtle. It's the prosperity gospel that we fall into every day. It's the prosperity gospel that whispers to our hearts, if God loves you, if you are striving to be such a good Christian, if you're doing all you can to follow him, why is your life a mess? Why is this area of your life not right if God really loves you? Why is that area of your life not what you thought it should be? Where is God? Why are you dealing with such a painful job, painful relationship, or painful responsibility, or you fill in the blank? You may have never for a moment bought into the major prosperity gospel, but we have all struggled with the minor prosperity gospel. We have all struggled with this idea that if God loves me, why? Why this? Why that? It comes from subtle, maybe even subconscious thoughts. It's still bad doctrine. It comes from thoughts that the Bible says God is love, but I really don't see his love in my life right now. The Bible says God will never leave me, but it sure doesn't feel like he's with me. 
The minor prosperity gospel can also come from messages other than the Bible, messages that are very appealing, messages we see in our entertainment. We see characters in our movies and our, our, our books that they seem happy because they followed their heart. And maybe that little whisper that we half recognize is there says, you should follow your heart to be that happy. The minority prosperity gospel, or the minor prosperity gospel, can also come from education, it can come from friends, it can come from several outlets, anything that makes us veer, even slightly, away from God's word. See, these, these sneaky bad doctrines, they come in like snakes. They spread their venom and they try to get our thinking just a little bit off, just a little bit off, and that venom goes down further and further into our hearts. So let me ask, what bad doctrine have you let crawl its way into your heart? Where do you find yourself turning for truth apart from God's word? From where is your doctrine being shaped? Said differently, what lies are you listening to? Are you immersed in God's word so that his truths are combating the lies that bombard you or are you listening to the lies? Are you reading his truth? Are you meditating on his truth? Are you memorizing his truth? Are you memorizing passages like Psalm 55, 22? Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Isaiah 40, 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 1 John 5, 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, it's passages like these that remind us that God does not stop the problems in our lives, but he's there with us in the midst of the problems. And do you meditate on these truths to stop the snakes that, that wriggle within? My friends, the answer to bad doctrine is, well, quite obviously, good doctrine. And to get good doctrine, we need to be in his word. And if you're not in his word, well, before you know it, the bad doctrine sneaks in and slowly shifts you away from the truth. And it can be slow. It can be slow. It can be just a little bit off. But that's significant. Do you know why? Ever been to the moon? Raise your hands. No one? Did you know that if you were to travel to the moon and your trajectory was off by just a fraction of an inch, by the time you got there, you would have missed it completely? The same is true in our doctrine. If we get off just a fraction and try to live our lives on something that's false, we'll be diverted onto a path away from God that leads who knows where. Bad doctrine leads to bad thinking and bad living. Here's your second point. Bad doctrine stems from a failure to understand God's word. Bad doctrine stems from a failure to understand God's word. So the Sadducees have set Jesus up. Here's the question. They think they've got him. They're going to make him look foolish. What is Jesus going to say? 
Well, just like last week, Jesus is not deterred by their question. He goes on the offensive. Jesus goes straight for the jugular, or better said, straight for the heart. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Tell me that's not in your face. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Bad doctrine stems from a failure to understand God. Jesus says, is this not the reason you're wrong? And that word for wrong, by the way, that means to cause to go astray from a specific way, heading this way and just start going this way. That's what that word wrong means. And the Sadducees had gone away from right doctrine. They'd gone astray from the truths of God's word, and this was caused by two things. Jesus says it right here. They did not know the scriptures, and they did not know the power of God. Now, they studied the scriptures. Jesus is not saying they're ignorant of what the law says, but they don't really know it. They're not reading it as God intended. They're not studying it as God wanted them to study it. So they don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. They failed to rightly interpret God's word. And Jesus is going to demonstrate that in a minute, but they totally miss the truths of scriptures. They are taking the Torah and interpreting its messages through their own human flawed reasoning. They don't know the scriptures. And then it says they don't know the power of God. And that's a reference to God's ability. That's a reference to God's control. That's a reference to God's supremacy. See, their view of God is small. They don't grasp the magnitude of who God is because they don't grasp the truths of scriptures. They don't even consider that God is powerful enough to raise people from the dead. And this happens in our day. Some people question God. They question his power. They question his ability. They question his sovereignty. And that word sovereignty means total control. There are people who question God's sovereignty, and they do it for this reason. They do it because there's evil in the world. They might say things like, because there's evil in the world, how can God be sovereign if there's evil in the world? And now let's be honest with each other. That's a fair question. How can God be sovereign when there's evil in the world? How can God be totally in control when so much evil happens? God is completely in control, and yet children die of hunger every day. People are ravaged by horrible diseases that destroy their bodies. Hate breaks out in the form of war that decimates whole countries. How can God be sovereign? How can God be in total control? And that kind of thinking leads people to conclude one of two things about God. Either he is not sovereign, he is not in control, he can't do anything about the evil, or people conclude that God is sovereign, he is in control, but he just doesn't care. In other words, he's not loving what they're saying here is either God is helpless or he's heartless. That's their conclusion about God based upon what they see. The wrong ideas about God that stem from a failure to rightly understand him and his word. Now, by the way, I can't open a can of worms like that and not close it, right? Why does an all-powerful, loving, faithful, sovereign God allow evil? 
The answer is simple, but not satisfying. The answer is this. He has a reason. And I know that's not comforting. I know that's not satisfying. But if I was to stand here and try to pretend I knew the reasons why God allowed everything to happen, I would be a false teacher. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is loving. He can stop evil, but there are times he chooses not to. So that must mean that there's a reason why he lets it happen, a reason why that's beyond our ability to comprehend it. And if you're wondering how I got to that conclusion, that's basically what God told Job. You remember the story of Job, all the evil that happened to Job. And you want to know what Job, the Bible tells us that Job never sinned, but you want to know what Job did do? He questioned God. All through the book of Job, he just wanted to know why. Why? Why is this happening? And God finally answers him in Job 38, 1 through 7. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or, you, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God goes on and on and on. But he's basically saying this, Job, I am God and you are not. That was God's answer to Job. God answers in this way because God is God and we are not, which means we are not the center of the universe. God is. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. God allows evil because God has a reason for it, but don't let that skew your thinking of who God is. The evil in our world does not define God. My circumstances and whatever I'm facing does not define God. God defines God, and he does so in his word. So if we're to understand the scriptures and the power of God, we need to know God's word. If we're going to realize that we're not the center of the universe, we need to immerse ourselves in his truth. So Harvest, I share with you that we must make sure we are being exposed to solid teaching of God's word. Not only do I hope that you're in God's word every day, but I hope that you listen to other biblical teaching besides what you get here on Sunday mornings. And I and those who fill this pulpit, we strive to bring you solid biblical teaching, but don't let this teaching on Sunday mornings be the only teaching that you're exposed to. Go to other sources, solid biblical resources for deep spiritual nourishment that teach God's word. Listen to pastors. I'm going to throw out some names. Listen to pastors like John MacArthur and John Piper, Greg Laurie, Tim Keller, 
I could go on. I just throw those out there. Read good, solid literature that teaches the Word of God. Read from authors like Wayne Grudem, Paul David Tripp, J.D. Greer, and Anna Voskamp. And again, many, many others could be said, but that's a start. The point is, be exposed to solid biblical teaching so that we all rightly understand God's Word which sets our mind on good doctrine, exposes bad doctrine that's crept in, and helps us on our spiritual growth. Bad doctrine stems from a failure to rightly understand God's word. Here's the last point this morning. Biblical doctrine is important because good doctrine results in an accurate view of Almighty God. Good doctrine results in an accurate view of Almighty God. Jesus continues in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, the first thing we see in verse 25 here, Jesus addresses the wrong view of the resurrection. He doesn't answer their question at first. He addresses their wrong view of the resurrection. He says, you know, no, 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 your view of the resurrection is erroneous. The resurrection is worlds different than life on earth. You can't possibly fathom what the resurrection is going to be like. Jesus tells them that the, their hypothetical situation of the seven brothers for one wife is a fruitless discussion. Their lack of understanding God's power and his word has led them to wasting time with fruitless theories. The resurrection is not going to be like life on earth. Jesus tells us in the resurrection, we don't marry. marry is, marriage is not a part of the afterlife. Now, before you get too sad about that, let me share some things. Marriage is wonderful. Marriage is the closest human relationship we have to understanding God's relationship with us. It's wonderful, but it's not in the resurrection. However, if you think about, the, by the way, resurrection, not in the life to come. Hopefully you got that before now, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about after this life when we are raised with Christ. Marriage isn't a part of that, but if you stop and think about this, when we are in our resurrected, glorified, perfect bodies all our relationships will be perfect. All of our interactions will be perfect. Intimacy will be perfect. There won't be any need for marriage. Marriage won't need to be there to fill a void because there'll be no void. You think about how awesome it will be to know you can totally trust anyone at any time. The very fact that there will, is no need for marriage shows us just how deep and special our relationships will be in heaven. You'll never be lonely. You will never be lonely. Jesus says here, we'll be like the angels. Now, this has given rise to the common misconception that when humans die, we become angels. Anybody ever see Angels in the Outfield? Christopher Lloyd? Yeah. Funny movie. But that's not truth. That's not what Jesus even said here. When he said, we'll be like angels, he means in the sense that angels don't procreate. Angels don't marry. That's how we're going to be like the angels. We won't marry like they don't marry. 
Jesus gives this very succinct answer to their question by simply pointing out that their premise is wrong. He's starting off on the wrong foot here. They don't understand God's power or the scriptures, so they don't understand the resurrection, so they draw erroneous conclusions about the resurrection. Now, Jesus could have left his answer there. He could have just said that, walked away, be done. But he goes on. Why? Because there's some bad doctrine to deal with. And Jesus wants to deal with the heart issue. He says in verse 26, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, this might seem a little confusing at first. Jesus is addressing their bad doctrine about the resurrection by pointing to dead people. How does this help his case? Why is he saying this? By embracing the belief, back to the Sadducees for just a moment, by embracing the belief that there is no resurrection, the Sadducees were forced to believe that death ended your existence. I talked about that earlier. Death ended your existence, the soul died with the body. Jesus, by bringing up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's actually contradicting that. He's contradicting that because what he's doing here is he's referring to patriarchs, the patriarchs who had a covenantal relationship with God. And this started with Abraham. Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8, I'm going to read this for you. It says this, Behold, my covenant is with you. This is God talking to Abraham. Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come for you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to, be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the Abrahamic covenant referred to in Genesis 17. God made an enduring covenant with the patriarchs, and a covenant is an agreement between two people. That's what a covenant is. It's an agreement between two people. Covenants end when people die. Everybody follow me on that? Covenants end when people die. If you just think about marriage, it's a lifelong commitment. It's a lifelong covenant. It's a promise to be faithful to one person, but it ends when one spouse dies. Jesus is saying here that the covenant between God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a continual covenant. How can that be when the patriarchs are dead? Because though their bodies died, They are still alive. Their souls continue to exist. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. This statement by Jesus confirms that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive beyond the grave. God's covenant is still in effect with them, which means they will come back. They will come back one day to live in perfection as God originally intended because God is the God of the living. And if we take that truth and we think it through to its conclusion, it clues us in to a characteristic of God. 
The characteristic of God is this. He is life. God breathed life into Adam, Genesis 2, and every word of God breathes life in us today. And I drew that conclusion through the understanding of the good doctrine that's revealed right here in Mark chapter 12. And this is why we cling to God's word. This is why we cling to God's word as his declaration of himself because it leads us to rightly conclude who God is. This is why also that my experiences do not sufficiently teach me about God. Hear me on this. I have had crazy God-intervening experiences in my life, and I know you have too. Moments where I just thought, what in the world just happened? That was from God. Those are awesome. But to base my knowledge of who God is on those experiences alone would greatly diminish my ability to understand him. Why? Because I interpret my experiences through my own limited human lens. I can't ultimately trust them, not as solid revelation of who God is. I can only fully trust his word. I can't fully trust my emotions. I can't fully trust my circumstances. I can't fully trust what others say. I can't fully trust visions. I can't fully trust dreams. I can't fully trust my experiences for solid revelation of who God is, but I can fully trust his living word, and so can you. To find out who Almighty God is, we must go to the source. Wayne Grudem writes this, it is most profitable for us to study God's words as written in the Bible. It is God's written word that he commands us to study. It is the word of God in the form of written scripture that is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, how do we let God's word shape our understanding of who God is? We need to let God's word undo us. It's one thing for me to be constantly reading God's word. That's good. Absolutely. But you see, we can so easily treat God's word as a textbook. I can read it, understand it, but not let it penetrate my heart. I need God's word to dismantle my bad doctrine. I need it to undo me so that I can read it the way he wants me, understand it, and come to conclusions about who he is. And the key to this is meditation. The key to this is to read God's word and then meditate on it. Let the truth of what the scripture is revealing to you, let it penetrate you, let it undo all the wrong ways that we think about God. Let it change us. So an example would be, as I read the Bible, I come across Revelation 4.11, and it reads this, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. If we soak in that, he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. It reveals who God is. Let the truth of God's word dispel the lies that fester in your heart. Soak in it. Meditate in it. Be undone by who God is. That's how we gain a better understanding of Almighty God.
if the Sadducees had been able to throw Jesus off here, if they had managed to make him look foolish, if they had succeeded in the intent behind their question, it would have discredited everything Jesus had said about the plan. Do you remember the plan? Three times as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, he took the disciples aside and he told them the Son of Man must suffer. He told them of his betrayal. He told them of his arrest. He told them of his horrible death. But then all three times, he told them of his resurrection. He says in Mark 9, 31, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. If Jesus had been thwarted by the Sadducees, it would have made him look foolish about his own plan. But let's take this a step deeper. Jesus not only taught and believed the resurrection, he is the resurrection. Jesus himself says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is the resurrection. In other words, he is the source of resurrection life. Without Jesus, there is no resurrection. Without Jesus, the Sadducees would be right. But he spoke in the beginning, let there be, and there was. The ironic thing about the passage here in Mark is that the Sadducees are questioning Jesus, disbelieving the resurrection, while they're staring the resurrection in the face. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe it, church? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Have you come to grips with your own sinfulness? Do you see the need of a Savior? Jesus is that Savior. Jesus came to save you from your sins. All have sinned, the Bible says. Sin leads to death, and that's why the cross, that's why his suffering, that's why his death, that's why his resurrection. If you don't believe this, what's stopping you? Come to Christ today. Accept the fact that you're a sinner and trust in his work on the cross and the grave. Give yourself to Jesus today. And if you have more questions about that, please catch me after the service. But for those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ, I put that same question to you. Do you believe? I know you believe in Jesus or you wouldn't be a follower of Jesus Christ. I understand that, but what I'm asking is this. Do you let the truth that Jesus is the resurrection drive your everyday lives? This is not a one-time decision. This is an everyday decision. This makes the difference for living for him and living for ourselves. Because if we believe, if we truly get the fact that there is a life after this one, a beautiful life, a perfect life, the ultimate life, if we truly believe that life is coming to us, then we can face whatever this world throws at us. Come what may, we can face the darkness of our past. 
We can face the darkness of our brokenness. We can face the darkness of the world around us that brings only death and decay. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection. He's the God of the living. And that's where good doctrine leads us, to truly, deeply know Almighty God. Faith is not something we choose based on whatever we want to believe. It is acceptance of what God reveals about himself through his written word. Let's pray. Holy God, you are awesome beyond our imagination. You are high and lifted up. Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you for what you've revealed about yourself in your word. Help us to know you better through your word. Help us to know the truth of who you are. God, help us fight the lies that devastate our minds and hearts. Help us fight the bad doctrine that so easily sneaks in. Give us wisdom to see the lie and turn instead to the truth. Draw us to know you deeper and deeper than we've ever known you before. Teach us your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.